listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Last fall, we started something new at Grace Mosaic. We decided as a community to start throwing parties for our neighbors on Friday nights. And once we locked in on the idea, we started the planning. We touched base with Alice's Jazz and Cultural Society to secure the venue. I started laying out my cooking plan and Pastor Joel started working on the set list for a band to play live music. And on the night of the first party, I was a little nervous because I didn't really know how this party would be received by our neighbors or if they'd even show up. But we arrived early and we started getting everything set up. And before long, neighbors started coming through the doors and we started eating and drinking. And when we kicked off the first set of music, people started hitting the dance floor. And after that first music set was finished, I jumped down off the stage to to mingle a little bit with some of the folks who were there. And I found myself in a conversation with one of our neighbors and He kept talking about how much fun he was having and how good the food and the music were and how meaningful this kind of evening was for the neighborhood. And at one point in the conversation, this neighbor said to me with a look of confusion, so this is a church hosting this party? And I said, yeah, we're we're right here in the neighborhood. We meet about three blocks from here. And then he said with a hint of curiosity, and you're the pastor? It's to which I replied, I am. And we talked for a little bit longer, and then I wound up in another conversation with another neighbor that registered the same themes of confusion and curiosity at the idea that this entire evening was hosted by a church. And the next day, as I revisited those conversations in my mind, something became clear to me. The church is not known for feasting. It's not known for celebration. It's it's not known for joy. In American society, the church is known for its hand-wringing. The church is known for its reflexive self-preservation and its combative impulses and culture-warring. And maybe in some places, the church is known for being nice. But what if the church became known for feasting and celebration? What if the church became known for joy? What if the first association that our neighbors and co-workers and children made with the church was to associate us with joy? In our passage for today, the Lord presents a picture of our future that's intended to mark our present while we wait. God's people are a waiting for joy kind of people. God's people are waiting for joy. We're waiting for uninterrupted, everlasting joy. And as we wait, we have to maintain our heart's connection to the coming celebration and the present obligation. These are our two points for today. The coming celebration and the present obligation. So let's look at our first point where we see the coming celebration. In the first portion of Isaiah's prophecy, 
he lays out a withering criticism of his people. God tells his people, you're living in a ruin of your own making. You're a people weighed down with iniquity. Your worship is hypocrisy because you're not committed to justice. You're an unfaithful city. Your land is filled with riches, but it's also full of idolatry. You defraud the poor. Your words and your actions are against me. Your leaders mislead you and you blindly follow. But interjected into the despair of this first section of Isaiah are these powerful glimmers of hope, of coming joy. And chapter 25 is one of those glimmers. We're given here a picture of the joy that will one day break in on God's people. Now, it's interesting, if you, if you engage people on the street or if you talk to your neighbors or your coworkers, and you ask people in our current society uh, what they think about the afterlife or what they imagine heaven to be like or, or glory, if it's not abstract, it's largely a question mark or an ungrounded certainty. But scripture provides a most accessible image of glory, of the future life, of heaven. And it's a banquet or a feast. Depicted in Isaiah 25 is a feast of epic proportions that God will host. And verse 6 tells us of the scope of the feast. If you take a look at the, at the text, verse 6 tells us of the scope of the feast. It's for all peoples without distinction. Yet another passage highlighting the cross-cultural love of God. We, we've never witnessed a guest list of greater human diversity. We see in this passage the abundance of the feast. It's not simply a meal. It's not a quick bite or a drive-through tossed in a bag. It's presented as a feast and an endless feast at that. We also notice in the text the quality of the feast. It's a table covered with rich food, well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. There aren't enough Michelin stars in the world to give to this feast. We are invited to imaginatively explore this scene as a most lavish, breathtaking, overwhelming celebration that the divine host is throwing for a group of people. And this divine host has clearly spared no cost for the joy and satisfaction of his guests. But that's not all. Look at the turn of the metaphor in verses 7 through 8. These verses read like this. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Let me put it this way. 
the Lord says that his guests will be swallowing rich food and vintage wine, but he will be swallowing up death itself. While his guests are wiping their mouths in satisfaction, he will be wiping away tears. As the angels are taking away the empty plates of God's joyful guests, he will be taking away the reproach and disgrace of his people. Are you imagining it? This celebration is sublime. But I absolutely love the response of the guests that we see in verse 9. Take a look at it. Verse 9 says this, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In whatever ways their hearts betrayed their perception of the Lord and his goodness, in whatever ways they fell prey to the popular misrepresentations of God surrounding them, in whatever way their sin obscured the vision, it all becomes clear on the day of the feast. Let us rejoice that this is who he is and what he is like. Let us rejoice that his generosity and love exceed the wildest dreams that we have dreamt of him. Let us rejoice in his goodness now that the caricatures and the suspicions have given way to a clear picture of the Lord of the feast, the Lord of celebration, the Lord of joy. But we must understand that this feast has a near and a far fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is the point of the feast. This is the point of the image. It was at the cross of Christ that the Lord made a feast of rich food and well-aged wine for all peoples. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. And that is why the Apostle Paul tells the church, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And it was at the resurrection of Christ that the Lord swallowed up the veil of death and secured our tearless future and took away our reproach and disgrace. But the wedding feast of the lamb is still to come in the second advent of Christ in his Second coming in his return. It's in the whole gospel of Christ that our vision of who God is and what God is like becomes clearer and freer from misperception and misrepresentation. And this is where we begin to find our joy. And at the wedding feast of the Lamb, we will see with unveiled faces who he is and what he's like and what he has done. But this joy is serious business. This joy obligates us, which brings us to our second point, the present obligation. Many of our neighbors and frankly, many of us take a therapeutic approach to joy and that is to say that the end goal of joy in many people's minds is for me to simply feel better. But what we see in this text 
is that the Bible doesn't offer a merely therapeutic vision. It offers a missiological and doxological vision. And that is to say that what's at stake in our joy is God's mission and God's glory. You notice that throughout this passage, we see an emphasis on a feast for all peoples, lifting the veil of death for all nations, the Lord wiping away tears from all faces, a removal of the reproach and disgrace from all the earth. This isn't an individualistic vision. It's a corporate and even cosmic vision. Chrysostom, the, the church father, once said this. He said, quote, It is a feast then, the whole time in which we live. The whole of time is a festival to Christians because of the excellency of the good things which have been given. The Son of God freed you from death and called you into a kingdom. Family, this is to be our missiology. We have already begun our enjoyment of the feast that will one day come in spectacular fullness. And we must understand that the church, you and I, are God's ordained means by which all people and all nations actually find their place at his table. We are the heralds and emissaries of that tearless day, of that great feast. We are witnesses to the removal of disgrace and reproach that God takes away from those who trust in the sufficiency of Christ incarnate, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ reigning, and Christ returning. Let me try to bring all this to a, a, a conclusion, to a summary, with a, a reference, a story. Um, there is an old film called Babette's Feast. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen it. But if you haven't, Babette's Feast is the story of two elderly and pious sisters called uh, Martine and Philippa who live in a small village on the remote coast of 19th century Denmark. And their father was a pastor who founded his pietistic convent. He, he started this small community of very serious Christians. But their father died, and now with him gone, uh, this austere sect, uh, they, they, they aren't drawing any new converts, uh, and these aging sisters preside over this dwindling co congregation of elderly believers. But then one day, there appears on their doorstep a refugee from the Civil War in Paris. And her name is Babette. And Babette carries one thing with her. She has a letter in her hand that explains her situation and it recommends her as a housekeeper. She doesn't speak the language. The sisters, they can't afford to take Babette in, but she offers to work for them for free. And so Babette serves as their cook for the next 14 years. And she basically does what she's told. She is asked to produce these bland meals, to just stick to the, the bland recipe. And, and she does this for 14 years. And slowly, she starts to gain their respect. 
Babette's only link to her former life in her former country is a lottery ticket that a friend in Paris renews for her every year. And one day, Babette wins the lottery of 10,000 francs. And kids, that's a lot of money. But instead of using the money to return to Paris and to resume her former life, Babette decides to spend the entire amount, all 10,000 francs, on preparing an incredible dinner for the sisters and their small congregation. But it's more than just a feast. The meal is an outpouring of Babette's love. It's an act of sacrifice on her part. Babette doesn't tell anyone that she's spending her entire winnings on the meal. And so she extends this offer to the sisters and the sisters accept. Uh, and they, they don't know really what to expect, but Babette tells them that she's going to make them a real French dinner. And Babette arranges for her nephew to go to Paris and to gather the supplies for this grand feast. And the ingredients are abundant. They're sumptuous. They're exotic. And their arrival causes so much discussion among the villagers. As these never-before-seen ingredients arrive and preparations begin, the sisters start to worry that the meal will become a sin of sensual luxury. They're suspicious of this whole enterprise. So the sisters of the convent, they call a secret meeting in which they agree to eat the meal, but they all agree that they're going to avoid speaking of any pleasure in it and to make no mention of the food during the dinner. And on the day of the feast, an unexpected guest by the name of Lorenz appears. And Lorenz is unaware of the other guests' plans to remain silent during the meal. But Lorenz is a man of the world and a former attaché in Paris, and he's the only person at the table who's qualified to comment on the meal. And he regales the guests with abundant information about this extraordinary food and drink, comparing it to a meal he enjoyed years earlier at the famous Café Anglais in Paris. And although the other guests refuse to comment on the earthly pleasures of their meal, Babette's gifts break down their distrust and their superstitions and elevate them physically and spiritually. At that feast, the guests experience reunion and communion with one another. Old wrongs are forgiven, old loves are rekindled, and a redemption takes place at that table. And after the feast, the sisters assume that Babette will now return to Paris. After all, she's won this lottery ticket, gaining 10,000 francs. But when she tells them that she spent all of that money on providing a feast for them, the sisters are astonished. Babette then reveals who she really is. She lets them know that she was formerly the head chef at the Café Anglais. And the sisters, with tears in their eyes, fall upon her 
with warm embraces of gratitude. Friends, this is what Isaiah is telling us. The God of heaven, at extraordinary cost to himself, spreads a feast before us in the gospel. Mercy and grace, love and acceptance, satisfaction and joy overflow his table in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel feast breaks down our distrust and superstitions, lifting us up to glory. At God's feast, we experience reunion and communion with one another. Old wrongs are forgiven. Love is rekindled and redemption unfolds at his table. Because of the extraordinary grace of Jesus Christ, we can feast and be satisfied with the gifts that overflow his table. Do you see it? At the meeting point between the church and the world, there must be a table. Because at the meeting point between the church and the Lord is a table. It's a feast. We have been invited into a feast of inexpressible joy. And it is now our calling, our obligation to invite our neighbors into this feast of joy. In the gospel... God has given the world back to us as a means of joyful communion with him and with one another. And this transforms our mission because it means that now we are called to return the world to our neighbors as a means of joyful communion with God. The world is not opaque to God. It is transparent. The world and all of its gifts, the food, the drink, the, the, the creation, these are doorways to communion with the God who joyfully gives these gifts in the first place. Once you have looked into the gospel and have seen Jesus as your host, you must look into the faces of your neighbors and see Jesus as your guest. He tells us as much in Matthew 25. He's the surprise guest that we welcome when we welcome our neighbors. When we see our neighbors and welcome them as, as we would welcome Christ, it's then that the mission is really beginning to pick up. It's, it's then that the mission really begins to take shape and flourish and thrive. We must welcome Christ in our neighbors because we have been welcomed by Christ. May our homes and our tables become for our neighbors foretastes of the feast to come. May the Lord give us the grace to be known for our feasting and our celebration and our joy. This is our calling. This is our responsibility. This is what the mission looks like. This is what it looks like to glorify God. This is how we lay hold of his joy. Even if it's in small part, even if it's an already not yet thing. That's, that's the calling for the church right now. Will we be known as a feasting people by our neighbors? Will they then begin to get a sense of who God is and what God's really like. Practically speaking for you, what that means 
what that could mean, what that, what that should mean is that it's time to work on your hospitality game. Now, I understand that we're in this time of quarantine, but now's the time to begin planning. Who are you going to become on the other side of this, of this pandemic? Are you going to become someone who reflects the divine host? Are you going to present opportunities to your neighbors to get a taste of the feast to come? It might be that you set a regular rhythm of getting your neighbors into your home. Maybe our congregations do a better job of throwing the party and rolling out the red carpet for our neighbors. Maybe it's that we begin to go the extra mile in the preparations that we make. Not to try and impress people. Again, we're not doing this in the therapeutic mode. It's not about us. It's about the lavishness of the feast that we know we're headed to. And in whatever ways we can anticipate that lavishness, going the extra mile for our neighbors, just so they can get a taste of it, so that they can be surprised by that joy. That's the, that's, that's the mission. That's the way. Instead of us being preachy all the time, what if our words were supported with a feast? What if it's the feast that actually makes way for our neighbors to really get their hands around who God is, what God has done in Jesus Christ, and that future toward which Christians believe themselves to be heading. There's something beautiful here for us to lay hold of. There's tons of opportunity for us, but I want us to begin to dream about that future and allow that future to invade and shape our sense of present obligation. May we be known as the most hospitable, joyful, celebratory, feasting people in this city. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.